Um, love for you to join by taking your seats. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter four. We're gonna be looking at verses three through seven today. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. On um, your phone, you should be able to find Galatians chapter four, verses three through seven. We, in this uh, time of Advent, a, a time in which we consider the coming of Christ, but also the time of Christ's return, uh, we are looking and considering just how wonderful Jesus is, just the wonder of Jesus. If you wanna simply know what this time is, it is uh, my job, my task at this time to make you go, wow, Jesus is something else. And so this morning I'm gonna do that by looking at Galatians chapter four, verses three through seven. If you have your Bible, let's follow along with me as I read it. I'll read it out loud, you can just follow along. This is a letter written to the church in an area called Galatia, and Paul writes this. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I don't know, when you, when you look at the moon, if you ever just go, wow. It's typically, when I see the moon, I don't typically do that. My jaw doesn't drop. Now, this week, as I was walking my dog at night, I actually could see the moon. I live under a lot of trees, and so when the, when the leaves are on the trees, I never see the moon. But this week, this Tuesday, I could see the moon bright and shiny, and I remembered this reality, and it made me go, wow, the moon's actually a lot more interesting, more wonderful than I could imagine. That, that almost 60 years ago, we sent somebody to the surface of the moon July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin traveled 238,000 miles and dropped the lunar module on the surface of the moon. And then they walked around conducting experiments, got back on the lunar module, headed back to Earth, and then came back. And they could say, we've been on the moon. Now, when I think of the moon and the fact that we've been on the moon and that right now on the moon there's an American flag, I go, that's incredible. I mean, that makes me go, there's, that's maybe one of the most wonderful things on the earth. Well, like the moon, the Advent Christmas season comes every year, and sadly, most of us look at this season like we look at the moon. We don't even think of it as anything. It's just kind of, here it is, and there it is, and it's done. In fact, we think more of this season as really being filled with parties, really not this season, but parties, buying gifts, receiving gifts, looking at gifts you'd like to buy with the money that you get during Christmas, family visitations, travel, and so much more. We have this frenzied pace and this frenzied reality that we fail to appreciate the very reason we even take time to take Advent into our mind. As a church that we say, we're going to take this season and we're going to consider what it really is. Like we miss the moon and the, the significance of the moon, so too do we miss the significance of Advent. And because of that, I think we get left to ourselves. We get left to our own selfishness, left to our own thoughts, left to, if that's the case, a measly existence. 
We don't live with wonder. And because we don't live with wonder, in truth, we're, we're people to be pitied. Living a life of wonder is a blessed reality. Have you ever seen the movie The Elf, starring Will Ferrell? The character that plays Buddy the Elf? Well, he walks around New York City in wonder, and his life is so much better for it. Wouldn't you like to live life like Buddy the Elf, walking around with a lightness about you, with a wonder? Well, that's why I want to draw your attention to Galatians 4, because I think these words speak to a reality, to the truth of the Advent season that can bring us wonder in the midst of our frenzied pace. In this season, we take time to consider the first coming of the, of the Messiah, the promised one, the Christ, that is Jesus. In the church, we call this the incarnation. It is taking on flesh. That's what incarnation means in the Latin. And so Galatians 4 reminds us of this incarnation. And in truth, it's not an overly complicated text. It's straightforward. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Simply put, Galatians 4 reminds us that God puts on flesh and blood and brings us salvation. So I'm not trying to get complicated this morning. I simply want to slow down and consider these few verses that we might reclaim the wonder of this season, the true wonder that can be had. To help capture this, I want us to consider the person of the incarnation, the point of the incarnation, and the prophet of the incarnation. And that's not P-R-O-P-H-E-T. That's the prophet, like you get some money from it, like prophet, okay? So we're gonna consider these realities that we might reclaim the wonder of this season. So first, let us consider the person of the incarnation. In slowing down, Galatians 4 has some incredible and interesting language. Look at verse four. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It's this fullness of time phrase that captures my attention and I wanna draw it to your attention. It's an easy phrase for us to look over. It's easy to miss. But what Paul is trying to, to grab our attention with is this. This is the most important moment, the most important time that has ever existed in the history of the world. All the prophets of old pointed to this moment. All the time after it points back to that moment. It's the culminating moment. It's the fullness of time. This is the most important moment, time, in all of history. And why is Paul saying the fullness of time had come? Why does he say that? Well, the answer is in the person who came. This person isn't just any person. It's the son of God who was born of a woman. It is the God-man. We rarely take time to consider the theological mystery of the two natures of Jesus. This is because it makes our mind hurt. We cannot grasp the full nature of the person of Christ left to our own logic. But here's the thing, if we fail to at least consider it, fail to grasp it in some way, then we will never experience the wonder of this season. And so for a moment here, I just want us to consider the reality of the God-man, the one who we proclaim is fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. So let's look at first that he is fully God. Paul says that God sent forth his son. 
all throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this son is described as Jesus. Jesus is describing himself all the time as the son. And what is the nature of this son? Is this son someone who is made? Well, that's not necessarily how Jesus presents himself. He always has been, John 1 says. But I love what Jesus says when he's asked if he's the Messiah by the Jews. He goes into this diatribe and he says this. He says, I told you, and you do not believe me, that the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe me because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then verse 30 of this chapter, I and the Father are one. One of the main tenets of the Christian faith is the nature of God, that God is triune, three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so in Jesus, we have the Son of God and the Son of God being born of a woman. This Son, Jesus, therefore, is fully God. In him, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. He is what the prophet Isaiah in the book of Matthew described as Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Jesus, God comes to us, fully God. But in the same moment, in the same moment that Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. And that's where we have this phrase, born of a woman, born under the law. These descriptions are simply this. They're statements that describe the reality of Jesus' human nature. Just like you and I were born of a woman, so too was Jesus born of a woman, born of a virgin, Mary. Yes, he wasn't conceived like us, but he was born like us. He was also born under the law of God. That is, under the law, if you want to simply think of it, the Ten Commandments. And he bared the burden of being under the law. He went through the tribulations that come with temptations that come with that. He, he, he went under the, the blessings that were to come if they were obeyed. He went under the, if they were disobeyed, there were curses. So Jesus was fully human in every way, including life in general. When his friends died, Jesus wept. When his mouth was dry, he thirsted and cried out for water. Jesus was fully man as he was fully God. I don't know if you um, have ever seen Sally Lowe-Jones book, Jesus Storybook Bible. I read it to my kids, and we've been trying to do this in the Advent season to do this. And as I was reading a story to them, I was caught by the way that she worded um, this reality of fully God and fully man. And I, and I just want to share with you. She says this, the God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around, the God who made the universe with just a word, the one who could do anything at all, was making himself small. And coming down as a baby. I hope we never look at Jesus the same way again. As we're driving in our cars and passing by nativity scenes that our neighbors have put up or churches display in front. I hope we never see that little baby Jesus and go, oh, it's so cute. And they said, look at him, so nice. Because that is not just a baby. That is fully God and fully man. He's unlike any person we have ever met. It's so significant, this season of Advent. It's the most significant moment in all of history. 
unlike we've ever seen before. So what's the point of this, though? Why is it so important that we can have wonder in the midst of this Advent season that his person is so important? Well, that leads us to the second thing, which is the point of his incarnation. The point of his incarnation. We've looked at the person of the incarnation. Let us now look to the point of the incarnation. If you just follow along with me, and I don't know how to say this very well, but if we look at the verses that we have read, there's inferred tension all throughout. And maybe not inferred, sometimes it's just straight up. Like, here's, here's what I mean. Look at verse three. This is what Paul says. We were once enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now this isn't inferred, but this is just straight oppression. You are enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What Paul is saying is that there's evil forces and you are enslaved to those evil forces. This is a problem. We get more into the inferred when Paul says in verse five, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The tension that's inferred in this is that once again, we're enslaved and we need freedom. We need redemption. We need to be bought out of our enslavement so that we might have freedom. And then you have this, you have this phrase that, so that we might be adopted as sons. The opposite of adoption would be an orphan. And the tension of, of, of being an orphan, a pitiable, poor, naked, unable to meet one's need, orphan. You see the tension. There's this enslavement. There's this need to be redeemed. There's this need to be provided for. There's a tension throughout. And it is this tension that, of course, the incarnation comes to resolve There's a quote by um, a theologian named John Miller who, who really helps, I think, understand the reality of the point of the incarnation and the person of the incarnation. Here's, here's what he says. We have offended an infinite God, so we owe this infinite God an infinite debt. But as finite creatures, we are incapable of repaying that infinite debt. It is a debt that man owes that only God can pay. So we have a God-sized debt, but we are only man-sized. How can we pay? We need a God-sized man to pay. And Jesus, the God-sized man, has paid the God-sized debt. The only way the tension that we experience can be resolved is through the incarnate God, the God-man. I don't know if you've ever bought a piece of furniture from Ikea. We don't have one here in Little Rock, unfortunately. But if you ever have the privilege of buying the cheap furniture from Ikea, you will have the privilege of putting it together. Now, I don't know if you've ever put the Ikea furniture together, but it's not easy. There are no words to help lead you and guide you. It's just pictures, and it's just this random-looking stick figure of like putting the pieces together. And let me tell you, you can be easily misled. I've done it several times now, and every time I put together a piece of Ikea furniture, one of the things that I've learned is that if it's not going in correctly, that somewhere along the line, I've made the mistake, I've not followed the instructions based off of this little, this little stick man, and the furniture will never, ever go together. And so, this perfect illustration of the God-man comes into play. If Jesus is not fully God, he cannot pay the God-sized debt that we have. 
If Jesus is not fully man, he does not, he's not capable of bearing what we bared and representing us. Like a, like, a, like a faulty piece of Ikea furniture, it's never gonna work. But because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he is able to pay and to resolve the tensions that we have. Like a followed piece of Ikea furniture, if you follow it along, it's a perfect, picture, a perfect piece of furniture. So here's what I want to tell you. Don't ever scoff at theology. Don't ever be like, it's too hard for me to understand and grasp. Because theology is what helps us resolve the important tensions of our life. And in the incarnation, we have God who took on flesh and bared the, the, the burden that we did and paid the debt that we deserve. If we lose the theology, we lose the instructions and we lose it, we don't have it. But we have it. And the point of the incarnation, which is our resolution of our tension, is satisfied in him. So what indeed does we, do we profit? What, what comes as the resolving of this tension? What is it we profit? What is the profit of the incarnation? This is the third point that I want us to consider. I want you to follow Paul's reasoning throughout his, his text. Paul's reasoning and logic is very simple. It says this. But when, God, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We profit so much from God's incarnation. And there's three in particular from these texts that I just want to draw your attention to. If you're asking yourself, what do I profit because Christ came? Three things just from this text. And trust me, there's more that you profit. But for, from this text, three things. You profit freedom, you profit adoption, and you profit intimacy. Look, look at these three benefits that we receive because of the incarnation. Freedom. No longer do the elementary principles of this world have sway over us. Why? Because God, who dwells with us, has power in your life over the elementary principles of this world. You're no longer in bondage to, to them, but also to sin and death. Because in the cross, the one who we look to, the one who we are in by faith, he is the one who paid the penalty for our sin and overcame death by his resurrection. And so the incarnation has made possible freedom and redemption from the, the, the elementary principles of this world, the sin that so entangles our life and the death that we so fear. We have freedom and we profit greatly from this freedom. If you're wondering, the theme of redemption and freedom run throughout the scripture, beginning in Exodus, running through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, finding its fulfillment in Christ. So we have freedom. It's a great profit that we have. It is for freedom that Paul will eventually say in Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So we are free. That's a great profit. But the second benefit would be the adoption. What profit do we have in being adopted as sons? In verse 7, Paul says, no longer are you a slave, but you are a son. We are sons by our adoption into the family of God. I don't know if you know this, but adoption in the ancient Near East is much like it was today. 
It's very pricey. It costs something to make adoption possible. And so when Paul's saying this, he's definitely thinking about the payment of bringing you into the family of God, the payment being the blood of Christ, the blood of the cross of the incarnate God, who has made you his own and brought you into his family by the blood of his son. Because of that, we are his children. We're no longer orphans. We are his children. What great profit we have. We're no longer pitiable, poor, naked orphans. We're cherished, clothed, and delighted in. But I love the last thing that we profit through the incarnation. And the last thing that we profit is intimacy with God. Look at what he says in verse six. The spirit of the son who dwells with us enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. This sweet cry of intimacy is the essence of those who are in Christ. The essence of those who trust him and, 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 and rest in his, his life, his death, his resurrection. Not only are we sons, but we're welcomed into the presence of the most high God, whom we can call Abba, which was a very intimate saying for those in the ancient Near East. Of course, all of this is made possible. Our freedom, our adoption, and our intimacy through the incarnation. It is a beautiful gift. Now, I loved Christmas growing up, and probably much like you, maybe, I don't know, but we had traditions as a family before opening up gifts. And it would drive me nuts because I wanted to open up the gifts right then and there. My family would always make a stand at the stop, top of the stairs, and the youngest would always go first. And so, I mean, I was always the third one to get down the stairs, and so I'd be the third person to see the gifts under the tree. And it was frustrating, but so much fun at the same time. Here's the thing. If Christ isn't born, I don't even get to experience the joy of the gifts of a Christmas morning. But even more so, if Christ hasn't come, I don't get to experience the gifts that bring me hope, joy, life, and peace in this life. The gifts of freedom from my sin, freedom from Satan and his ways, freedom from death. If Christ hasn't come, then I'm not a son, I'm a pitiable poor orphan. If Christ hasn't come, then I don't know what it's like to be intimate with the living and true God. But Christ has come. And I received those gifts, and so do you, as well as the gifts on Christmas morning. It's a beautiful thing. Because of Christ the God-man, we have received a great prophet. And my friends, what this should do is move us to worship and to wonder and amazement at the God who has saved us and relieved us of our tension. I mean, this gift is greater than any iPhone or computer or gift we can think of. It's so good. Let us worship him. I think one of the most underrated movie scenes of all time in the history of Hollywood comes from the great 90s classic, Dumb and Dumber. In the scene that I'm referring to, Lloyd Christmas, played by Jim Carrey, leaves a hotel bar, and in the process of leaving the hotel bar, has his attention grabbed by a 30-year-old newspaper hanging on the wall. The newspaper is from July 21st, 1969, and the headline reads, Man Walks on the Moon. Astounded by the headline, Lloyd Christmas 
utters under his breath in absolute unbelief, no way, this is so great. And then he walks out into the hotel lobby, screaming, we've landed on the moon. Look, it's easy to lose sight of the wonder of walking on the moon. Lloyd Christmas didn't even know it happened until 30 years after it happened. It's so easy then to lose sight of the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation as well. But in considering the person that Jesus himself is fully God and fully man, in considering the point of his coming to relieve the tension that enslaves all of us, that, that riddles all of our lives, and to consider the profit that the incarnation brings with it, freedom from our sin, freedom from our death, freedom from the, 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 the um, powers of this world, when we consider these things, we too will stand in wonder and awe of the one who came, put on flesh, and bared our burden, and gives us much gifts. I think we too will be like Lloyd Christmas, walking out into the hotel bar, at least this is what we should be, saying, he has come, he is with us. Would you pray? Lord, it is so easy to lose the wonder of the incarnation. Maybe we've been through church all our lives, and it's just so routine to consider your coming. It's my hope, Lord, that your spirit would remind us, though, of the wonder of the incarnation, though, that we wouldn't just go through the motions, that our imagination and our mind would be so caught up with what it is that you have done. You put on flesh and you dwelt among us. Oh, Lord, may this season be one of great joy and hope and peace, but especially wonder because of these realities. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.